Last week, if you were here, we looked at, uh, we looked at three different motifs, if you will, of sin. It sounds like a, it was a lot of fun, right? Sin. Sin as a sort of captivity or slavery. Uh, sin as service to this alternative kingdom, right? Uh, sin is running away from home, leaving behind all that God has for us. And sin as uh, monument building to ourselves. So my hope was looking at sin in in that sort of a way to round out our understanding of what it means to be in sin, to think about it in in a way that helps reinforce its seriousness and incline our hearts to God and His kingdom and His better way. Now, if in fact that's where our hearts are this morning, to His better way, then Paul and our supporting lectionary passages are going to show us how to move forward. So a little bit of a structure for this morning. We're going to look at this sort of civil war, this tension that exists within each of us. We're going to look at God's role, God's job in this process, and then round it out with our response, our job. So with that said, let's pray. Lord, you do have the words of eternal life. We look to you. We desperately want to know you. We desperately want to be near you. We want to do the good, and we identify uh, in various arenas of our lives and in various degrees with, with that cry in our reading this morning, wretched man that I am, wretched person that I am, constantly not living up to the expectations that not only you have for us, but even that we might have for ourselves. And so, Lord, would you give us your life this morning? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law in my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Now, uh, in the end of John's gospel, he, he writes that there are many other things that Jesus did and were every one of them to be written. I suppose that the world itself could not contain all the books uh, that could be written. And I think the same could be said about commentaries on the book of Romans. Um, There are a lot of people who have dived into this book and and a lot of opinions on who this I that Paul's talking about is. Who's this wretched man that I am? Is this someone before they become a Christian? Is this someone after they become a Christian? Is it a Jew under the law? Is it uh, some sort of internal struggle of the Christian? Is it something else entirely? Uh, I don't think trying to understand who Paul is talking about is an unimportant thing to wrestle with. And and perhaps maybe the ambiguity uh, or perceived ambiguity here gives us an opportunity to engage with the Bible in a a way that we might might not otherwise. But if I had to wager an educated opinion, I I think what Paul is trying to do here is to create a, a fictional person to kind of illustrate a point that he wants to make. And Rather than trying to determine with, with specificity who that person is, maybe what we could just look at is what is that person experiencing and what can we learn from that? Uh, John Stott, in his uh, commentary on Romans, he, he boils it down to these three essential characteristics, if you will. This person, number one, loves the law. So, in other words, they, they, they have this idea, this concept of the good. They're inclined to do good. 
We're not talking about a sort of a person who is aware of their evil, loves their evil, wants to do evil, is fully set in that direction. That's not who we're talking about this morning. But number two, this person is a slave to sin. They have no other choice but to sin. Because three, they either don't know about the Holy Spirit, or I would add that they, at the very least, aren't living by the power of the Holy Spirit. So I think what we can take away from this is that there's this division within ourselves between our inner being, or our mind, or soul, or will, and our body, and that each of these, our body and our inner being, has an allegiance either to God or to sin and death, okay? So there's this tension that exists within us. Uh, my twin boys, Rowan and Soren, who are underneath us at the moment uh, in kids' church, did soccer this year. And if you've done kids' soccer, what a thing to behold. <laughs> it's unreal. These kids are clearly not on the same page, and they don't have a coach, they don't have practices, it's complete chaos. You got one kid over here who's kicking everything in sight except the ball. You've got this kid who is literally running in the wrong direction. This kid is picking his nose, like nobody's on the same page here. It's madness. I kind of love it, but it's insane. <laughs> and this is sort of the situation that we see Paul describing here. There's there's this tension, there's this, this will, this mind that wants to do good, and yet this body that is constantly choosing to do the wrong thing. This is the reality that God has, yes, come, he's established his kingdom, he's brought about his rule, his norms, his order, and yet we're living in this time between the times where we experience that, and yet we also experience the effects of this outgoing regime of death at the very same time. There's this overlap. And like C.S. Lewis said, there's no neutral ground, as we mentioned last week. No neutral ground. This battle is being fought, uh, yes, in a cosmic sense, out there, but it's also being fought in each of our hearts. Father Rick is fond of uh, quoting Alexander Solzhenitsyn. I think I said that right. The line separating good and evil passes through every human heart. And I think that's what Paul's trying to say here, but more precisely, this disintegration, this division is between our mind or our soul and our body. On the one hand, you have this mind that's aware of God and its goodness and inclined to do that, loving his law and kingdom and his rule, and on the other side, a body that is set against it, that demands pleasure, demands expediency, demands the path of least resistance. It's what our bodies do. God's intervention notwithstanding, your body wants to get angry at that idiot who cut you off, right? He wants to, your body wants to give in to those lustful temptations. Your body wants to, to think that it has the final say. Uh, as a bit of an aside, it, it, it might be a contradiction in terms to consider it, but do you ever stop to wonder if the, why the you that you are isn't just a body, but it's a mind and a soul as well? Again, it's absurd to, to suggest it, but if we were just bodies, everything that we would do would be for the benefit of my body, my advancement, my pleasure, my good, my protection. Even 
Sigmund Freud and all his deficiencies identified a sort of triune division within our person, right? When he's talking about the psyche, the id, the ego, the superego. Uh, there's this plurality in our person that exists, and that plurality exists so that even the remotest possibility of preferring the other is possible, other than my body. It's, it's almost as if God made us as little, like, Trinitarian icons, right? Inviting us to see the reality of the, of the Godhead relationship that he's inviting us into. I mean, it's masterful. It's absolutely masterful. And so it leads us to ask the question, how do we reintegrate our mind that wants to do good and our body that is completely inclined to serve itself and sin and death? This goes for the person who would not consider themselves a Christian, who wants to do good is not submitted to Christ, or perhaps you are a Christian and you are submitted to Christ, and yet, um, yeah, maybe you're not always uh, yielded to the Spirit. Let's dive back in for a moment to our text in Zechariah, shall we? Dropping us right into the middle of this apocalyptic battle. You look at the commands for God's people, if you read through it, what are the commands for God's people? I should say we've transitioned now to point two, God's job. I forgot to mention that, if you're tracking. Briefly, what does Zechariah say? What's our role? There's three things. Rejoice greatly. We did that this morning. Good. Shout aloud. My kids do that excellently. Okay. Behold the coming king. Those are the commands for God's people. What, what, what then is God's responsibility? What's his role? It's he who cuts off the chariot. It's he who, dis- who cuts off the war horse and the battle bow from its assault on Zion. He is the one who possesses righteousness. He's the one who has salvation. You might have noticed that he's mounted on a donkey. Uh, sounds familiar. Uh, this prophetic passage does point to Jesus as our humble king who brings peace to the nations, uniting them under his dominion from sea to sea. So, of course, we can read this text cosmically. We, can, we, we know that he will, in our world, vanquish evil once and for all, and justice will be exacted, and his kingdom will come in its fullness. But we know this to be spiritually true as well. As Christ has defeated the power of sin and death in you, he wants to bring peace to these warring nations within you. Victory is found in the person of Jesus Christ this morning. Victory over powers that seem to rule you. This internal struggle to do the right, this division of will and action can be brought into alignment in Jesus by faith. He does it. That's how Paul can so confidently assert there's therefore no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. By union with Christ, like we talked about last week, but inaugurated in your baptism, identifying with him in his death, his record, his victory, his peace is yours. And that's good news. His guilty, not guilty verdict is yours, and his victory over death and the grave has rendered your captors, your masters, your former masters, impotent. They have no authority over you this morning. Thanks be to God. He fought for you, and he won. He won. 
Jesus says it this way in our gospel passage. He says, all things have been given over to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. The Father delegated the battle to the Son. He fought the battle, and he won. And as children, our role is to recognize our need and our dependence on him to do this good work, and he will do it. He's anxious to do it. It's his good pleasure to do it for you. When I was a younger man, I played a a lot of hockey. Love hockey. It's objectively the greatest sport ever. Uh, Played street hockey when I was really young, roller hockey, ice hockey. And I was on a team with my brother uh, playing roller hockey. And like any sport, perhaps especially hockey, things can get particularly intense. Uh, especially between opposing players. My brother would find himself getting into, shall we say, disagreements with other players. And uh, he was not a very big guy. Um, I was adopted, so we don't share the same like, physical makeup. He's a rather you know, slender guy, but his uh, temper was, you know, outmatched his body size. And... Um, There was no way he was going to get out of these disagreements in one piece. And so it was honestly my good pleasure to step in and provide much-needed conflict resolution (laughs) in those moments. And uh, I loved it. It was a lot of fun. Uh, (laughs) Friends, we have a bigger brother who has stepped in for us. We've gotten ourselves in a mess, but our bigger brother has stepped in for us and fought for us, and he's won and it's yours, if only you'll avail yourself to it. Point three, our response, our job. What's our role in all of this? I love that all of our readings this morning are all saying the same thing from a different different context, different angle. Zechariah says the way to do this, your response, is to return to the stronghold. Who's the stronghold other than Jesus? Augustine says it this way. He says, Christ himself is the tower he's made for us, a tower from the face of the enemy, who is the rock upon which the church has been built. Are you taking care that you, are not, that you not be struck by the devil? Flee to the tower. There you will stand protected and fixed. In what manner shall you flee to the tower? Let no person set in temptation seek the tower in body, that when he finds it, would be wearied or faint in temptation. The tower is before you. Call Christ to mind and run to the tower. Run to the stronghold. Run to Jesus. He says it almost verbatim in Matthew, right? He says, come to me, Jesus says. If trying to do good, if trying to actualize this victory, this battle with sin, To be the person you want to be doesn't begin. If it doesn't begin with going to Jesus, it's not going to go well. It's not going to end well. You can come up with any plan. You can white-knuckle your obedience. You can use any strategy. But unless the Lord builds the house, the laborers build in vain. Eugene Peterson says it beautifully. The Christian life is going to God. The Christian life is going to God. In going to God, Christians travel the same ground that everyone else walks on, breathe the same air, drink the same water, shop in the same stores, read the same newspapers, citizens of the same governments, pay the same prices, fear the same dangers, subject to the same pressures, get the same distresses, and are buried in the same ground. 
The difference is that each step we take, each breath we breathe, we know that we are preserved by God. We know that we are ruled by God, and therefore, no matter what doubts we endure or whatever accidents we might experience, the Lord will guard us from every evil. He guards us from every evil in our very lives. Jesus says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. And so there it is. Come to him and take his yoke. The way to find this victory, this reprieve from this tension, is by taking his yoke. What's a yoke? Uh, I'm tempted to make a dad yoke at this point, but I, I won't. Oh, oh too late. <laughs> You'd expect that rest from our battle-weary souls would be like a nap or a vacation or something, not a yoke, right? A yoke is this wooden sort of arched piece of wood that would go over the backs of, of oxen that would allow them in tandem to do a very hard job, to plow a field, to pull some sort of weight. At the time, Jewish teachers would have referred to the yoke of the law or the yoke of Torah as sort of linking yourself, fully submitting yourself to God's law over and against worldly concerns. So Christ is saying, take my yoke. Well, what does that mean? I think it's something to understand, and it's something to do. So what, is it to, what, do, we, what do we have to understand as we take the yoke of Christ? Well, to take his yoke is another way of saying that you're united with him. We talked about it last week in baptism, that you are fully identified with him in his death. You will be in his resurrection, and even now, your life, you are in Christ by faith. If that describes you this morning, if you're united with Christ by faith, then you are yoked with him. You're a package deal. Jesus is right there with you. He's in you. Paul talks about it when he writes to the Galatians. He says, God sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so that you're no longer a slave but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Thanks be to God. Okay, we understand that. What do we do? We like to do things, especially men. If there's anything I've learned, it's not the way to solve an argument with your wife. <laughs> they just want you to listen. Don't fix things. Anyways, no, it's a digression. What do we do? Being yoked is, is it's an implement to accomplish something, right? It's not sedentary. We're not just sitting back. There's action here. Uh, so I've got good news and I've got bad news. What do you want first? I'll give you the bad news. The bad news is if you thought keeping the law was tough, it just got a lot more complicated, Right? In our context of our gospel in Matthew, Jesus, he delivers the, the, the Sermon on the Mount. And he says, if your righteousness doesn't exceed that of the Pharisees, then you're, you're missing the mark here. And the Pharisees created hundreds of laws on top of the law in order to not break the law. And we need to exceed that degree of righteousness. You thought not murdering was okay. How about not being angry with your neighbor, with your brother? Committing adultery, if you've looked at a woman with lust and you've already done it. Turn the other cheek, he says. 
Give them your cloak as well. Walk a second mile. Love your enemies. Pray for your persecutors. Don't only do good deeds, do them secretly. Don't only fast, don't look gloomy when you're fasting, and so on. But the good news is that he is not leaving you to your own devices. He says, learn from me. Dallas Willard calls this apprenticeship. It's being yoked to him. It's, it begins with identification, but then it moves to imitation. Being yoked to Christ means that when he pulls you in a certain direction, you're naturally inclined to follow him. You move in the ways that he moves. The ways that he says things are, become the way that you say things. Your very reactions to things start to look like the way he would react to things. To exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees, we not only need to learn to do the right things, we need to be the kind of people from whom the deeds of the law naturally flow, as Dallas Willard continues. He says, the apple tree naturally produces apples because that's what's in its inner nature. So how do we do that? How does it actually happen? What's the practicality of it? It's what Paul says the end of our passage today, it's the, it's the mind set on the spirit that's life and peace. It's, it's not glamorous, but it's how we apprentice ourselves to the master. It's spending time with him. It's prayer. It's, it's learning. It's watching him. How did, how did he do that? Okay, I think I can do that too. And he's enabling you to do that. Any number of spiritual disciplines that facilitate you coming to Jesus and hearing once again that he is fully for you, that the, the unmitigated love of the Father is yours in Christ Jesus. He loves you, he is for you, and he is enabling you to live the reality of his kingdom, the fullness of life and peace. So in conclusion, friends, God in Jesus Christ has fought the good fight on your behalf. He's won for you the victory over sin and death, the desire to do good, to flee from sin. It's no longer just a desire, it's a reality for you this morning. He's offered for you in himself safe haven in the very life of God. And he doesn't just leave you on your own to figure things out. No, he's offered you an apprenticeship this morning in the spirit of life to lead you into all peace. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. And amen.